Hi to everybody. This is Patrick McKenzie here with the ninth episode of the Calzumias podcast. Our guest today is uh, Samuel Hulick, who's uh, behind useronboard.com. And my usual co-host, Keith, couldn't make it today. Actually, I moved out to Tokyo recently, so it's uh, a bit of a logistical nightmare getting everybody together. But hopefully that'll work out itself over the next couple of episodes. Anyhow, uh, it's great to have you here, Sam. It is wonderful to be here. So uh, I think today we're just going to talk a little bit about what you've noticed in your experiences as a consultant slash author on the topic of user onboarding, what you know software companies typically do well, do poorly, how they can improve on it, and also a bit of like on a meta level, you know, your experiences of building up the expertise as an expert in this emerging field of uh, dev-related topics and uh, how that's you know worked out for you personally in your career. I'm Sounds excited good. to cover all of that. Awesome. So I guess first question. As one of the few people in the industry who I trust with regards to this topic of uh, user onboarding, oh, and by the way, guys, I trust Sam uh, largely because he's done maybe 20 public teardowns of websites saying like, hey, this is a SaaS company. I signed up for their product, you know, copious screencasts slash uh, screenshots of the product during the onboarding phase. And if you're not familiar with that uh, term of art, onboarding is basically the experience immediately after you sign into the product for the first time. It's analogous to like unboxing in the retail world. Uh, sometimes we call it the first run experience too. But anyhow, onboarding gets some, getting someone shoved into the software. So Sam did public teardowns about this for various websites ranging from like Gmail and Basecamp down to you know, no name of websites like mine and just highlighted, okay, here's what they're doing well. Here's what they're doing poorly. Here's what my recommendations would be for doing it better. And one of the things that I noticed as I was reading a lot of Sam's write-ups is that they're really, really good. These are the sort of things that I used to do for consulting clients and mine were not nearly, you know, so in-depth or detail-oriented. I would just kind of say, well, I, you know, A-B tested things around this before and I, I would do X, Y, and Z, but I had no really like theory of the mind of the customer that was informing X, Y, and Z where Sam is much better at the theorizing behind it. So anyhow. Well, I'm honored as, uh, that you think so. So after building you up so much, um, <laughs> what's sort of like the general, that's a stupid question. What's the general takeaway for software companies about our onboarding processes? What are the easy ways that we, you know, flub things up right now? And uh, how can we do that better? Uh, I think that the, probably the biggest mental hurdle to get over, well, a couple of things. One is I, I oftentimes will look at how the organization is organized. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, are you, like there's the, the term Conway's law, which is that the output of a team will be reflecting the way that that team was organized. So if, you know, one department doesn't talk to another, that part of the application probably won't talk to that part of the application and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And so I find that a lot of times when you're looking at how uh, a product is produced or how it comes to be, there's typically a marketing department or team where they're incentivized around driving awareness and acquisition signups and kind of just ends after signups a lot of the time. And then you're looking at a product team where they're driven around creating new features and driving ongoing engagement and not really any uh, humans in the organization that are really incentivized around bridging the gap from signups to highly engaged users. And mm -hmm. so first of all, I would say that it's, it's a lot of times if there's an onboarding issue in the user experience, it's a lot of times derived from the, the way that the teams were even split up to begin with. Yep. And then on top of that, a lot of times onboarding seems to be something of an afterthought. I look at a lot of similarities between onboarding 
in a product like a SaaS product or um, between that and tutorials in a video game or something like that. And a lot of times people seem like they get really carried away about making the quote unquote core game or the the essence of the software product without really looking at like how do you looking at the problem to be solved as how do you even get people engaged to begin with? And so I wouldn't say that onboarding is necessarily something that uh, I would recommend waiting till the very end when all the resources and time are exhausted and trying <laughs> to staple something on after the fact. I would really look at your product as the essence of what you're doing is creating some amount of success in people's lives. And the onboarding process is a process of getting people transitioned from a situation that's probably frustrating them because that's why they're trying out a new product to a situation that they're a lot happier with, which is why they pay you money for it. So that's kind of a kind of a big thought dump, I guess, but that's that's my general take on it. Sure. Um, and I'm, I largely agree with everything in that general take. Uh, something that I often went to uh, clients and other people in the SaaS industry and tried to impress upon them was that, um, and again, for reasons like you were talking about with Conway's Law and the fact that this is not tracked anywhere in the organization, most companies are unaware of this. But um, depending on the SaaS company, if you have a free trial sign-up model where folks can have a low commitment way of like testing your software out, somewhere between 40 and 60% of the people who start a free trial will never log into the software a second time. Like they get that one free trial experience and then it's like, out of here. And so given that the first five minutes of the use of the software is all a lot of people are ever going to see, you really have to make that first five minutes absolutely sing if you're going to convince, you know, literally like half of the market for your software that not just, you know, putting their their information into a computer is the change they need to make in their life to get this massive success that you're trying to create for them, but rather, you know, they're going to have to go to bat for your software with other people in the organization. They're going to have to change the way how they do some process at their job. They're going to have to change their habits over months and years to get value out of it. And that, you know, kind of like long trek to changing those habits and getting unlocking the value starts with just that like first five minutes. So that first five minutes absolutely cannot be a blocker to them. Yeah. For those listening, I'm nodding vigorously right now. <laughs> I completely agree. And, and the 40 to 60%, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful for you making the public claims in that regard, because then I get to reference that in, in my material. So very, very much agree. And I would also say like one thing that you touched on is it's really important to make those first five minutes really great. But at the same time, I wouldn't uh, constrain the definition of onboarding to just that first run experience that <laughs> a lot of times when I see onboarding done really well, it's because they have a really smart automatic trigger uh, lifecycle email campaign that follows or things along those yep. lines. And then also, you know, even before sign up, just orienting people around the value that your product offers and setting expectations and guiding their their motivation and momentum in the right direction. So if you think you're signing up for one thing and, you, and you're getting another, that's an onboarding problem. But, you mm -hmm. know, certainly could have been the the, uh, the heavyweight could have been lifted long before that person signed up. Yep. I have a priceless anecdote about that, actually, due to everybody does experiments, right, with uh, traffic traffic channels, different ways of acquiring customers, whatnot. I presume they won't be too mad at me for talking about this. Fog Creek has fog bugs, which is a bug tracking product for developers. And uh, due to an AdWords campaign at one point, Google was sending people to the landing page who were looking for things like the query was bug for tracking boyfriend's car. And uh, so the landing page 
at the time did not disabuse someone of the notion that fog bugs was the right product for them. And so they got some very interesting feedback in the customer support channel about, I don't see how I track my boyfriend's car. How do I start <laughs> tracking my boyfriend's car, etc. And you can sort of think of that as an onboarding problem. Obviously, the solution was you know, tighten up our Google campaign so that we're no longer paying them a lot of money to send people who want to do various legal activities with software. But, you know, setting expectations is really important. I like that you mentioned lifecycle emails. Uh, some of the, the best, like, individual wins that I've seen companies get are just, you know, circling back with someone in an automated or semi-automated fashion you know, a day or two after them signing up and say, you know, hey, you signed up for blah the other day, but it looks like you haven't gotten around to using it here's how to get started. And then just giving them X, Y, and Z, where if you can, X, Y, and Z are triggered based on their actions in the app. So that, you know, for example, hypothetically, if I was writing one for GitHub and somebody had signed up for the paid version of GitHub, but 48 hours later, they didn't have a single repository in their paid version of GitHub. I might ping them and say, hey, you know, thanks for signing up for GitHub. It's the place where you want to get all your source code, but you don't have your source code in yet. So here's how you can start by getting your source code into GitHub. Or Maybe that isn't your job. Maybe that's someone else at the organizations. Totally. Here's how to give them the instructions they need to start using your company's new GitHub account. Yep. I, I completely agree. I think that looking at, you know, what are the external pressures that are forcing that person to be trying out new software to begin with and being as aware of those as possible is a total no-brainer. So especially B2B software, mm -hmm. um, understanding who's the person who needs to sign off on this check being cut is there an IT review of some sort that needs to happen? Can you create a PDF that they can slide across the desk to their boss that explains the ROI of your product instead of <laughs> hoping that they can kind of come up with something clever on their own? You know, like those are all things that, that I would highly recommend uh, doing for sure. Oh, that ROI calculation is priceless. Um, I actually do that in a scalable fashion for appointment reminder. Somebody several weeks into a trial once emailed me when I said, hey, your trial is... Uh, coming towards the last couple of days. So um, since I have their credit card already, it's just like a courtesy notification, like, hey, we're going to charge you in three days. If you don't want this to happen, cancel now. That is not actually the copy I use, but that's the sense of it. And they wrote me back and said, hey, Patrick, really appreciate the email. So I've got a question. My boss is asking me for an ROI calculation on this software. I don't know what ROI means and I don't know how to calculate it. Can you do that work for me? I'm like, well, since it's going to help you pay, you know, 80 bucks a month for my software, I can certainly help you out for that. So I attached an Excel spreadsheet where I made some you know, assumptions about their level of use of the software based on what I had seen in the database about them and assumptions on their cost structure as a business and said, okay, so you're, so it turns out this is saving you, make up a number of $500 a month, it only costs you $100, so that's an ROI of uh, 500%. And then right after I sent that email, I'm like, wait, this calculation is generalizable to everybody. And there's approximately nobody who would hate hearing that they're getting 500% ROI. So I just changed the email that they'd gotten that uh, eventually prompted them to ask about ROI such that the computer uh, automatically calculated ROI if they were getting a, a happy number. And if it calculated the ROI and they were getting an unhappy number, it instead sent them a second email, which was informally, it's called trial unsuccessful, although that's not actually in the email to them, but it basically says, hey, you know, I'm a small businessman. I understand that sometimes I want to do something in a given month and then life just gets so freaking busy and I'm not successful with getting that done this month. I totally understand how that might have happened to you too. If it did, drop me an email. I'd be happy to extend your trial by another month. 
And so maybe a quarter of people who get that email will write me back and say, hey, yeah, I wanted to do it. I just got busy. Can you extend my trial? And then that gives me an opportunity to both talk to them about, you know, figure out what the, if there was an issue with appointment reminder, how do I fix it such that they wouldn't have needed the second month. And also, you know, the value of a trial that bounces out of your system is zero. The value of a trial that's still in your system is non-zero. So to a first approximation, it's always to your advantage just to give people the extra trial, especially if you don't like advertise that you're doing that, which whoops, I just stole the podcast with 40,000 people, but none of you will pay me money. So it's fine. <laughs> so yeah, uh, lifecycle email, it's where it's at. I concur. Yeah. What other things? So one of the things that I see trip up folks a lot when they're doing onboarding is sometimes the folks who are in charge of onboarding, and this goes back to your organization point, might not be the folks in charge of product. And mm-hmm. so prior to like customer.io and uh, shoot, what's the other .io company? Intercom.io. Sure. Which give people who are less technical the ability to like set up these uh, complicated lifecycle email chains without having to necessarily dig into the code of the product to do it for themselves. A lot of the you know, marketing or customer success teams might have had a little difficulty uh, hooking up lifecycle email. In addition to lifecycle email, what are like tools that someone who might not have total control of the technical aspect and what could they do to influence the customer in their onboarding phase? Well, hopefully I will be able to point to something that I am making sometime down the road. Oh, please do. <laughs> but, uh, in the in the meantime, I am a big fan of Jonathan Kim and what he's doing at AppQs. So that's a piece of third-party software that people I would recommend people check out. You know, I mean, this maybe is cheating a little bit, but looking at like live chat software like Olark, like just being present in there <laughs> and, and understanding where your onboarding experience is breaking down to me is really, really valuable. Especially if like I, I, most people who are faced with the onboarding dilemma in their company tend to be more like user experience or product, but just don't really have the resources to pull it off. Um, But even if you're just kind of living in that world and can just say, you know, guys, people think that they're signing up for a bug to track their boyfriend and boyfriend's car or whatever. Can we just make a copy change or something like that? Typically Mm -hmm. those can, you know, I can get pushed through. It's not like it's a whole new feature, things like that. So I would really, really recommend having live chat in that moment because you can find out where one person is going wrong and then make changes that affect the untold thousands of other people that will be following them. Mm-hmm. That is, by the way, just one of the generic secrets of running a SaaS company at scale. Like you do lots of stuff that doesn't scale and then use the stuff that doesn't scale as kind of fuel for the mass scalable approaches that uh, uh, affects the rest of the customer base that doesn't talk to you. Yep. And so whether that's automated email sequences, website copy changes, uh, whether it informs your general marketing strategy, whether it uh, drives changes to the product to make things easier to understand, et cetera. Yeah, completely. And, you know, one thing I was speaking with Nick Francis from Help Scout the other day, and mm-hmm. he put it, he made a really great point, which is like, even if you're using your own product or eating your own dog food, like you're not dog fooding your own onboarding experience. You're not signing up for your product over and over every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of times you can be pushing out changes over the course of three weeks or three months that, you know, change A, B, and E collide somehow and mess up your onboarding interface in the mm-hmm. onboarding experience. But it's a real blind spot for a lot of people. So that's another big reason that I really recommend getting a live chat box like Olark or something like that installed and just maintaining a presence there. Yep. 
That's actually a really good point. Um, one of the exercises that I used to go, go to with consulting clients was uh, roughly on a quarterly basis, I would have people take out like an actual honest to God physical credit card and sign up for the product, not the staging server, not, you know, actual production system, like put in a credit card, buy it and see if everything works cool. and see if everything was optimally, well, optimally optimal. Like you won't believe, you know, I think I'm, sign up flows, purchasing flows, et cetera, they have a great tendency to go stale because they get implemented by a junior rails engineer in the first like two months of the company. And since they air quotes work, nobody ever looks at them again until, you know, you break them in such a way that sales go to zero. Yeah. It's crazy but, to me. I mean, you spend so much, you know, your team breaks your back, their backs to create uh, features that people would bother signing up for. And your marketing department is killing themselves trying to get more and more people to sign up for them. And then looking at like just even getting people introduced to that or finding some sort of wins. And then even if they defy all the odds and get that far and they're ready to pay you, like let's put a ring on this. And then that experience breaks down. Like it's just, it's super frustrating. So yeah, I completely agree. And you would not believe how many times you have like really good, passionate product people in a room who... You know, these folks would not tolerate like a single comma out of place on a preferences screen. You put them in front of the credit card form and ask them to buy their own product. They put in their credit card number, like it's written on the credit card with spaces and the form like blocks them from doing that. It's like, you should take out your spaces. It's like, wait, flag on the play. Like, right. Why are we telling a human to do something that a computer can do better? Yeah, exactly. Let's fix this. Yep. I completely agree. So, um, can be your takeaway. Just take out your credit card right now, try to buy whatever it is you sell. Anyhow, so switching gears for a moment from, oh, one more thing on the topic of user onboarding before we go in fun new directions. Sure. So one of the things that I like to do, so like there's the, the less invasive changes you can make to an onboarding process, like, um, you know, changing the marketing copy before the sign up to establish expectations better, changing the lifecycle email copy your lifecycle email timing to rescue more people who might not have a 100% successful first run experience uh-huh. or to maybe not even rescue people, but assist them in being more successful with the software for folks whose decision-making process just naturally doesn't occur at their company in like a five minute increment. But the kind of like more resource intensive thing that I do for my own products and do for a lot of clients is implementing a uh, post sign up tour in the application. I was wondering if you could, you know, distill some experiences that you've had of doing that with clients, seeing it on the internet and uh, dot, dot, dot. Well, um, that is an, an area, philosophically, I have some issues with it, to be honest. Oh, okay. Um, and so I, I somewhat hesitate to, you know, someone who has run the amount of experiments that you have and have found success with it, presumably great amount of success with it. I don't want to poo-poo it out of hand, but... I think that there are a couple issues of going down the road of basically what you might call a tooltip tour or something like that, where you're kind <laughs> of spotlighting, you know, different parts of the interface or things like that. One, going back to my initial point of uh, tacking onboarding, uh, stapling onboarding on at the very end of the product cycle, that a lot of times I think people use it uh, to literally cover up. Uh, user interface issues that they have. Like, um, yep. you know, a lot of times people will use it kind of as a crutch to say, I mean, I've literally seen a button that says like create project and there's a tooltip that points to it that says click this to create a project. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a really wonderful 
Flickr group that Jason Fried from Basecamp started a long, long time ago called Signs on Signs, where he takes pictures of, or he did at the time, took pictures of, you know, a sign like in a library that says, please be quiet. And then there's a sign attached to that sign that points to it that says, look, look at this sign or, you know, attention, please be quiet or things like that. And so a lot of times, like if your interface is messed up, adding more to it that literally points to the parts that are confusing is not something that I would recommend. I would really recommend just fixing it to begin mm -hmm. with. So, so there's that. I think another issue with tooltip tours and things along those lines, I've seen your appointment reminder tour and this, it does not qualify for this critique, but a lot of others I think do, is that they're very focused on introducing people to features or introducing people to parts of the interface more so than they are at, at guiding people to actually accomplish something. So a lot of times you'll see, you know, six tooltips that all show up at the same time. And, you know, and it says like, click here to do this or when you need to do this, go over here or things like that. And they're not actually walking you through getting something accomplished. They're just mm -hmm. basically asking you to remember where to go when you're faced with a situation in which that button would be useful. Um, mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when I see tooltip tours done poorly, it's because they ask people to learn by remembering and not learn by doing, uh, right. which is not the case with yours. You focus on one thing at a time and the entire thing is about, let's just guide you through, kind of hold you by the hand uh, and get your first appointment scheduled and understand you know, how, what it's like, what kind of phone call you're gonna be getting when that happens and things like that. So I would say not in your case, but a lot of times, that can be an issue. And then one other thing to really look for with tooltip tours is that they can be, how would I put it, sequentially fragile, that there are a lot of times where if your plan is to is to get people through maybe a 15-step tooltip tour uh, workflow, but if there's you know a, an issue where somebody thinks they're supposed to click on one button, but they're actually supposed to click OK within the tooltip or something like that, all of a sudden it disappears, getting back into it. Do you start back at step one or step seven where you left off? Things like that, like the using that as like a highly linear narrative device can go sideways really quickly. So that's another thing to be concerned about. Yeah, just in terms of uh, building stuff, when I build out tours, I always have a, partly because I'm aware of the fact of sequential fra uh, fragility, there is generally a easily accessible bailout button for the tour mm -hmm. at all stages of the process, which when somebody bails out, it should probably keep them in a consistent state that doesn't totally hose their account. Right. It's not universal on all tours. Either, you know, you give them like a wiped clean account or you give them, ideally, you would like just give them full control over the interface, but keep the state of the account as whatever they were just seeing mm -hmm. uh, to kind of, you know, not have like the leaky abstraction of, okay, that the tour mode stuff was actually just fake objects created in a, in a uh, fake state that we displayed to you, but it was actually a lie, which is how a lot of them are implemented. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you almost think about like, I can almost guarantee that you, myself and every listener for this podcast has downloaded some sort of mobile app and that's been greeted with like a welcome, like a series of welcome screens and gone swipe, 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 swipe to just get through it to get to the actual thing. And then... <laughs> not know what was covered in the thing that you just skipped over and not really know how to proceed from there. So yeah. I would say like any kind of intro or tour or anything created around helping people make progress and move forward, but don't absolutely depend on that. Like I would design for, you know, a null state where basically 
okay, this is still going to make sense and we're still going to be communicating the most important things when the dashboard is empty or things along those lines and not really, you know, count on the handholding as your only source of orientation and, and motivation. Definitely. Speaking of null states, often if you're in a project management app and you have no projects, the first screen will say, you have no projects. Right. I, kind of accusatory. Right. I would always say, rather than saying, like, you have no projects, okay, if you're in development mode, sure, whatever. Put that up there, like, zero of zero results returned for projects. But when you're shipping that to actual customers, just, you know, quick one line of statement, replace it with a, here's how you can get started creating a project. And then most people just, like, put an arrow that points to the add new project button and they say, click above on add new project to get started. Rather than that, I would give a little, of, little bit of goal-oriented instruction. Yeah, 100%. Nobody, and the, the only thing I would add to that is not only prompting them to fill it up with something, but also yeah. like, here's the value of doing that to begin exactly. with. So this is, you don't have any projects yet, but this is where you'll be able to see which ones are, uh, you know, in, at the biggest risk of not shipping on time. Click here mm -hmm. to add your first one or something like that to me would make, you know, that's, that's my general recommendation because just changing it from you don't have projects to, you know, click this button to create one isn't still, it's not making it a meaningful action. And that's, you know, right, that's, right. A, that's a term that I use over and over again when I'm looking at onboarding experiences. Like, do I even know what I'm doing or do I even care about what I'm doing? Can you help me, you know, at least get to one, if not both of those? One of the things I really like is when uh, you provide people with sort of like a vision of the future they'll have if they're using the software. Ideally, a vision more focused on them than just focused on your software. But for example, uh, I think Barometrics does this very well. Uh, they're a company that slurps data out of your Stripe account and presents a variety of metrics for you. And my recollection is when you start using Barometrics in the pre-slurp state, they've got nothing to show you. But rather than showing you, we've got nothing to show you. They you know, show a like grayed out uh, version of like their real stats. Mm. It's like, wow, you can see all of this stuff except for your business if you just click the, you know, the slurp button and give us however much time it takes to do the slurp out of your account thing. Yeah, and that can um, be like a ping. Like you, you don't have to build in a feature that has all this mocked out or whatever. Like, right. You know, yeah, so. Is that how it's pronounced? PNG? I always call it ping. Yeah, I don't know. Is it, what do, do you, do you, do you just uh, say the letters or? It's, okay, here it's PNG, but then again, I've lived in, you know, uh, Japan for the last 10 years, so. Yeah. Do you call it like a JPEG or a JPEG? Wow, I don't know. It's definitely GIF. <laughs> so GIF and then, I don't know. It's been too long since I've been in a Japanese office despite being here for 10 years, so wow. Well, that's something to celebrate, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yes. Every day that I'm not a sailor man is like one more day of actual life. Yay. <laughs> um, so anyhow, uh, so we covered uh, onboarding tours a little bit. We covered the uh, a bit of the design of UX when someone is getting started with a product to uh, feel like they can get more success and not just have to do like meaningless busy work until they get to the good stuff. We covered a bit of lifecycle emails and whatnot. And man, I'd be a terrible businessman if I did not mention the fact that if you go to www.lifecycleemails.com, there's a course for me teaching you how to do that. Okay, a little plug. Anyhow, so you also have a, I mentioned you have the blog at useronboard.com. Maybe blog isn't the right thing, like a site where you go into this customer onboarding thing in a bit more detail than people typically do in a blog post. And you do teardowns of uh, folks' user onboarding experiences, the pre-signer process, the signer process, the post-signer process, 
Yep, like uh, I can dig into what emails they send. Slideshows. Mm -hmm. I thought this was really, really smart back when I first got to know you in that you very clearly said that, okay, there's a million UX designers out there and I'm going to be the one that just like takes user onboarding and owns the heck out of it. Uh Uh-huh. So how'd that work out for you? Like in terms of, so I know you wrote a book on it later and uh, we can talk about that in a moment too, but uh, I presume you also do a bit of consulting and whatnot. It, I would say that uh, going after a niche has been a, a highly lucrative decision on my part. As mm-hmm. yeah, the consulting and, and the book sales have both been really strong and uh, really it's been it's been a pretty fun ride. Awesome. Mind if I rewind the tape to a little bit before the, the fun ride and whatnot? What got you into this in the first place? Yeah, interestingly, you were saying that I wrote the book later, but the book was actually what got me into it to begin with. I was a user experience generalist for years and always I, I was kind of at this like weird in between place where looking at things like conversion rate optimization is not typically something that's part of like the UX wheelhouse. But I was always really, really interested in, you know, I think that you're actually probably a good representative of this mentality of like, we're let's find out what the problems with this flow are and empirically demonstrate that we've improved upon it. Um, <laughs> you know, to me is is not, I guess when like the job to be done of, of what somebody hires a UX consultant for is typically not that. And so I really kind of struggled with that for a long time, looking at kind of a competing set of passions that were between, you know, qualitative and quantitative. So user experience versus conversion rate optimization. And then like the contentious, the ever contentious term growth hacking, you know, oh. was, was that as well. But they all kind of embodied <laughs> the same thing, which is like aligning your success around your users being successful and paying attention to whether that's happening and where that's breaking down. And then being able to, you know, measure the impact of your the way that you've improved upon it. And so I had been, let's see, so where do I even start here? I decided to write a book because I wanted to take a product to market, but I didn't want to, you know, go uh, six months to a year into developing some sort of a SaaS product and then take it on the chin with a bunch of rookie mistakes about just how to price something or how to create a landing page that sells it or, you know, how to have a product launch or things like that. And so I thought, instead, I'll just have a really constrained product in the form of an ebook. Surely I can write that in a couple of weeks, which was, spoiler alert, not the case. And then, you know, be able to just kind of get my toe in the water by getting something out there and just go through that experience and learn from it. So very naively, I put up a landing page for the book and I titled it Customer Growth. And it was basically all about grow your customers by helping your customers grow. That was kind of the the one-liner for it. A lot of issues there. One, that's not a thing that people explicitly care about. It's more of like I would have to write this like a very philosophical thought piece on why people should care about it to begin with and convince them of the value of the subject before even convincing them of the value of the book that covered said subject. Um, another, you know, like the best way I can describe it is nobody was sitting down and saying, you know what? We have this problem with this thing that I've never heard of. I wonder if there's a book out there on it. Amen. Yeah. I think, uh, I don't know, for folks who you have a previous success behind you, you have a war chest, maybe you have a lot of VC investment, uh, thing that you can expend to tell the market that they've got a problem, that, that is an option for you. But for those of us who are just getting into business for ourselves, you should not be targeting problems that you have to explain to people that they have. 
You should be targeting problems that they know they're that they know they have. That when they wake up in the morning, it's one of like the one or two things that is keeping them up at night. That's mixed metaphor. One of their like one or two top hair on fire problems for today. Yep. So and virtually every mistake I've made in business in terms of product selection has been not targeting those. But that's another podcast entirely. <laughs> the one thing that I did right though was fully committing to getting the book out before I mm-hmm. started and. As I guess we'll get to in a second, you know, there were definitely some hard stretches in the middle where people would ask me how the book was coming or something like that. And and I would very truthfully tell them that I was glad that I didn't know how hard it would be before I started or I never would have started. Mm-hmm. And I was equally, equally true about how hard it was and also equally true about how glad I was that that wasn't the case because I was fully committed when I started and I was just absolutely going to see it through. So I put up the landing page wasn't really sure, you know, how I was going to go about writing the book or establish my expertise. Obviously, you know, Nathan Barry's information out there was it was a big source of help and inspiration. So, you know, he's pretty email list centric. And I was like, I guess I should start an email list and see maybe I could get up to hundreds of, you know, subscribers or something. So, I mean, literally starting at zero, like not even having an email list, that was like, okay, I'll put up a landing page, get people to sign up. And then I had to figure out how are people even going to be getting to the landing page? Because, you know, that was really just, this was like the a, the definition of a cold start, I guess you could say. Yep. And so I, uh, as a UX consultant at Generalist at that time, a lot of times I would do something very much like the teardowns that are on the user onboard site right now. And I was like, man, you know, like... I'm already writing the book, which is really hard, you know, because I'm a painfully, painfully slow writer, which is another issue. But I was like, am I going to like try to guest post on other blogs? Like that's even more writing on top of writing the book. And I've heard sometimes, you know, you just basically get like a really de-emphasized link in the byline and it results in like three people signing up. Like Mm -hmm. I can't spend 15 hours on a blog post and hope that that happens. And so I was like, man, if only I could share these teardowns that I've been doing, but that would, I'd feel weird because they were commissioned and paid for and not really owned by me. And, mm-hmm. But I was like, oh, well, I can just do, I could just pick a company and and not ask them to pay me for it and just do whatever I want with that. And so I uh, went, I just, you know, just picked a company at random, which was Open Table mm-hmm. and recorded the experience. And I was like, this, it just didn't really come out right. Their onboarding experience is very confusing, I guess you could say, or non-existent almost. And so I, so I had to scrap that one and it was getting kind of late into the day. And I was like, maybe I will do this. Maybe I won't. All right, screw it. I'll do I'll try one other company. And that company, once again, just completely at random was less accounting <laughs> who you, your listeners would probably be. It's kind of in the similar space, I guess. Less accounting for those of you who don't know is a bootstrapped uh, software company that is basically a stripped down competitor to Quicken. There you go. Yeah. But also like they, they seem to really maintain a presence in the bootstrapper community and stuff. like I, That's what I was referring to. Oh um, yeah. Um, they do. It's, it's funny, a little bit of community inside baseball. I think uh, sometimes we overestimate how much folks know about the quote unquote scene. Like if you go to, you know, if you hang out at Amy Hoy's conferences and go out to Bacon Biz every year or go out to Microcaca every year, then you've run into the less counting guys and you know who they are. I happen to know that for a lot of the world, it's the first time they're hearing about it right now. And by the way, the good software, you should use them. <laughs> but um, yeah. And so, well, and actually, uh, speaking of which, that was back in November of 2013. So not even a year ago, 
I was one of the people who didn't really know what they were, who they were. I had known them just because they'd been around for several years. Didn't really know that they were highly involved in the bootstrapper quote unquote scene or whatever that might be. But I was like, all right, they seem, they seem friendly enough at the very least. Went through, created the teardown, put it up on SlideShare. And like, I think it was like the end of the day and, and SlideShare like messed up the formatting and the aspect ratio. And I just wasn't really happy with the product, but I was like, I'll just go in, you know, go, go home and talk to my wife and tell her I kind of blew and blew another day while I'm trying to get this book out. So I posted it. And the next morning I got an email from one of the co-founders of Less Accounting. And I, so I see it in my inbox as like the subject line and, you know, see who the email's from. And I was just like, oh no. And I was sure that when I clicked on it, it was going to be, you know, him coming in and be like, oh, thanks a lot for airing our dirty laundry and like pointing out how mm-hmm. our onboarding experience isn't working and who even are you? And it turned out to be completely the opposite that he was like, thank you so much for pointing all these things out. We already made a bunch of the changes that you recommended. I see you're writing a book. How can I help promote it? And it was just like total night and day from what I was expecting as like a worst case scenario, really just a super supportive response. And he wound up featuring it on the Less Accounting blog. And that was really the very first thing that I did that like got a decent amount of traffic and a decent amount of signups for the email list and things like that. Awesome. I think this strategy is very generalizable. And in fact, folks have done it or in a lot of circumstances, and it often works well. Dustin Curtis is a designer. He basically made his name by taking a few, you know, big cove Fortune 500 company websites and doing redesigns on them. Yeah. Um, I might have issues with that particular work product, but that's neither here nor there. 37 Signals, back in the day before uh, anybody knew who they were, they just like did unsolicited redesigns of like, you know, the FedEx application and said, here's all the mistakes that FedEx is making or... Okay, it wasn't actually FedEx because I think they were probably worried about getting sued, but it was a a uh, purple-looking delivery company, and <laughs> they just had like you know purple delivery PDF with the redesigned version of the purple delivery company's web app, which featured like you know package tracking as a first-class citizen rather than the fifteen thing that you wanted to use, um, and especially if you do this for other people who are like closer to the us's of the world than the thirties uh, than the uh, Fortune five hundreds of the world. Folks often will not be, you know, the first impulse will not be send a cease and desist or be very annoyed at you. It's like, hey, you know, like folks describe me personally as internet famous, which can say funny, funny word. But I am to this day, like my heart lights up anytime someone shows any bit of attention to one of my products. So, you know, if you want to like screen grab everything and show what I'm doing wrong with the world or how my pixels are out of place, I won't think, oh, he's insulting my pixels. I'll think, yes. Totally. Someone noticed me. Awesome. Yeah. Just to briefly touch on the whole, you know, unsolicited redesign thing. Like I can see how I'm in like in a similar space as that, but (laughs) personally, I'm really not a huge fan of unsolicited redesigns as a thing, largely because it's a very surface problem. Like you're basically Mm -hmm. saying a lot of times when you see them, especially on dribble or things like that, it's, you know, I, I didn't think this was pretty, so I made it prettier. Yep. where you don't really know what's really working that well, what's not, what kind of constraints the team is focused faced with. Mm-hmm. You're probably not even necessarily the primary audience that the product was intended for. So for a lot of reasons, you know, I when I'm creating a teardown, I try to be very, very conscious of the fact that there are real people who had made this under real pressure and mm-hmm. it was to serve a job that may or may not be something that was well, like, I mean, I'll literally go through the sign-up process to create the teardown. So it's not like I'm even really genuinely 
trying to make it work for me in that moment, you know, so there's already that. And maybe I'm not even a key audience member at any point of time. So there are those issues. And then also, like, I've actually had conversations with people where maybe I'll say, yeah, you know, deciding to do that kind of made me scratch my head or like that doesn't really conform to like a, like the, you know, quote unquote best practices or whatever that might be. And mm-hmm. the design team will be like, yeah, yeah, we hated it too, but it's working really well. And so, yeah. you know, not having visibility into the conversion uh, funnel or whatever that might mm-hmm. be. And then also just not knowing about like what kind of internal pressures they're dealing with in the office. I really, really try to say basically, objectively, I, you know, these are what our best practices are not, you know, considered to be generally within the community. And then also anecdotally, as a user, I was legitimately confused when I went through this, but really, really distanced myself from saying this is objectively wrong or anything like that. Right, right. I think that is a great attitude to have about it in general, and probably a um, karma maximizing attitude if you want to, uh, if you're hoping to kind of like power an audience as a result of uh, publishing these things. Also, I think as somebody who has you know, worked in a lot of companies and seen the sausage get made, that it actually absolutely tracks with the internal like human slash political slash resource based constraints on why something might not be totally optimal. Like there's a lot of times where, you know, Oh, heck, I'll own it. Like, I won't blame the client. I'll blame myself. There's some things that I have shipped where I could point to, you know, X, Y, and Z decisions of the things that shipped today and said, uh, you know, I hate X, I hate Y, I hate Z, but here's the, uh, uh, you know, I had 100 points of awesomeness in that engagement uh, where awesome is an arbitrary resource and uh, the fixing X would have required 20 points of awesomeness and we just, we had other things to spend awesomeness on. So just, Shift it out the door. There you go. Yep. Or often particular team or a person in the organization just did not want to budge on why, and they had been really cooperative on some other part. And so you, you know, trade tit for tat on them. That happens all the time in real life. Yeah. Uh, um, anyhow, but going back to the book for a moment. So yes. who released some of these, uh, these teardowns and both the folks who were quote unquote, I hate that word teardown, by the way, I'd like to say build up. So <laughs> So you released some of this feedback on people's onboarding processes. Some of the folks who were featured in this feedback found it really, really useful to them, like the guys at Less Accounting. And they spread all over the internet to these people's pre-existing networks as they said, hey, someone has taken this interest in our business and, and given this really useful feedback, click here to read the write-up. And thus you got, what, a few hundred, a few thousand people to subscribe to your email newsletter? I mean, specifically, like from, you know, in the early, early days, it was, you know, maybe a couple hundred when the book was still (laughs) called Customer Growth and people probably didn't really know what they were signing up to get. But through the success of the the teardowns, I was like, so I did the less accounting one and I was like, well, that went well, I should do another one. So then I did Basecamp uh, and then that one got shared a lot. I think that wound up on Designer News for the front page for quite a while. (laughs) And so at that point it was suggested to me that I stop using SlideShare and instead create a site that's dedicated to those where I could control the conversion timing and, you know, the asks basically, which, and I also just wasn't really super huge fan of the user experience on SlideShare either. Can I circle this point and start guys? Like there's a lot of folks who put their best work on medium. (laughs) In my case, some of my best work is on Hacker News and other folks' cases, it might be, you know, on Dribble, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Medium, etc. For things that are on GitHub, major one for the developer community, for things that are essential to your career, like 
building up a public portfolio, you really want to be able to control all aspects about that, both how the work is presented to people who will you know, be future decision makers about your career, what you emphasize about it. If you embed something in GitHub, you're going to end up with a very GitHub-y experience for that, regardless of what it is. And the way that people consume that artifact that you have put on GitHub will be a very GitHub-focused consumption experience rather than a you-focused consumption experience or a them-focused consumption experience. Yes. So I would strongly encourage from both a UX point of view and a maximizing the future value of your past work to your future self point of view that you put it on your own darn website. You, you know, think about kind of wrapper type issues like, should I put an image logo on it? What should I title this? What sort of, sort of asks that should I be having on the page? Like whether that's asking someone for their email address or, you know, for those of you who might not be selling a book, but might be selling freelancer consulting services, maybe you ask them to send you an email and ask for a quote or send me an email. I would love to have a Skype chat about this if it interested you. And then you convert them into some uh, a request for a quote or something on the Skype chat, et cetera. But yes, asterisk, you should absolutely have it on your own website. Yeah. Which is, by the way, to this day, why almost all of my writing is on, well, aside from Hacker News, uh, almost all of my writing is on either my own blog or one of my other sites. And most of the things that I produce even for free, the canonical source for it is on my web presence rather than other people's web presences. And I love GitHub, don't get me wrong, but in the absence of contracts that I can neither confirm nor deny exist, my job is not to make GitHub money, it is to you know, make my family and I money while producing stuff of value to society. So I tend to keep that on my, my own web presence rather than theirs. Yep, I completely concur. Um, Anyhow, so you have... You did the smart thing. You moved some of the stuff from SlideShare. And by the way, you can still host stuff on SlideShare. Just put the embed and the write-up in your own site, and then it will collect the links and citations people are looking for it. There you go. But that's what I do for all my presentations, by the way. So you've created a web presence for this. Right. And so I, I guess at that point, it was very clear, like, oh, user onboarding is the thing that I should be talking about, not a component of this very vague thing that I want to talk about. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I guess a good litmus test is like, if you're going to be writing an ebook, is it something that people would find helpful? Like, are you being, are you doing it to help people or are you doing it to preach at people? And I made the shift from preaching at to trying to help in when I made the shift from writing a book on customer growth to writing a book on user onboarding. At that point too, that's when I bought, you know, the user onboard domain because useronboarding.com was already taken created the site like in a weekend and, uh, you know, put up, transition the slides over to, to that. And then just kind of kept coming out with new teardowns. Basically it was like one a week at that beginning. And so at that point, you know, the newsletter or the email list signups went from a couple of hundred to a couple thousand and then, you know, even further from there. So, mm -hmm. um, and you know, nicely enough still, I mean, the book's already been out. I didn't really launch it very well. I, I kind of set out to do it so I could learn rookie mistakes and and boy, did I make some. But I mean, a really nice thing about it too is like having an ongoing web property where I can continue. Uh, there's a there's some repeatability to it, I guess you could say. Every yeah. time I put out a new teardown, I know that's going to result in X hundred more newsletter signups and you know Y more book purchases or whatever that might be. And so it's been nice to have as just an ongoing asset for sure. This is something that I really like about this like new age publishing model where rather than 
you know, you contract with the publisher, you write a manuscript, they pass it through a few other professionals, put it out on the, and it goes to bookshelves across the country, it sells a thousand copies, and then is available for back ordering from anyone who wants it, but nobody will because they are very launch focused. When we control the assets and we control the marketing plan, we can, you know, not just have like a launch launch centric approach to the value we're creating. Most of the value is not created just by launching something. It's created by a building something of value and then figuring out what the right recipe of things is to get people to be exposed to that thing of value. And you can kind of like tweak and adjust over time. I thought, um, and even in the, uh, can I use a word? I hate information marketing space. Um, a lot of it is very launch centric. And I think that's partially because a lot of folks who are broadly in that space don't produce things of value. And then after the market figures out that the new thing that has been produced is not a value, sales go to zilch. But um, for people who generally produce books, software, et cetera, value, they often have a substantial long tail component to the tails. Like um, if you follow the usual, you know, email slash launch centric approach where you're collecting email addresses, the thing launches, you send a, you hit 10,000 people or whatever with a, uh, offer to buy the thing in the first two weeks, then you typically will get a spike at launch day or, you know, in the first two weeks. But uh, there is residual value to having that, uh, both in terms of like quantifiable you know, money in your Stripe account, residual value, and also in the fact that you can point in conversations with later people, you know, three years from now, you'll still be the guy who quite literally wrote the book on user onboarding when you're talking to potential consultant clients. Or if you have a new book, will be by the author of the best-selling <laughs> book on user onboarding, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's So I wrote one book uh, by a non-traditional publisher, uh, Hyperink, called Sell More Software on Amazon, which I thought, like, one of the things that traditional publishers tell you is you should write a book, not because making a book it will make you money, because it won't, but uh, because having written a book on something is great for consulting. And I always thought that was... Uh, self-serving BS. And it is self-serving when the publisher tells you that, but it is not totally BS. Like there are some clients who really, really connect to having a book available on Amazon. Mm. Um, I happen to know that there's a few copies of mine bouncing around at four, Fortune 500 companies at like the VP level, which surprised the heck out of me. That's um, awesome. But I also produced a video course uh, two years ago about lifecycle emails. And that just has a, you know, as I write more stuff for my email list and people get added to the email list. And then eventually like 30 days later, they get a brief blurb about the lifecycle email course in one of the emails that onboards people onto my email list. Uh, it produces just, you know, a nice happy Chinese water torture of, of sales <laughs> over time. So, so I don't do any active promotion for it and it's been out for two years or so. And it's probably still made $10,000 this year, which is a pretty nice place to be for not doing additional work. So, uh, would you mind if I asked how many people do you have subscribed to your email list this, these days? Uh, a little bit over 11,000. So that's actually right about where I am at about 12-ish or so. One of the things that I frequently get when I'm talking to people about the general, like making stuff and then selling it about the internet is that folks have unrealistic expectations about what quote unquote internet fame is. 11,000. You know, subscribers to an email list is not a number that you have to be a uh, international celebrity slash internet man or mystery to hit. Uh, you and I are both, you know, just total mortals. We did the uh, a not too terribly difficult to comprehend tactic of uh, 
doing the thing that we were good at in public and then saying, and if you want even more of this stuff, give me your email address and then hooking that up to an easily available mail provider, which costs like, you know, less than a cable bill a month. And then just continuing that for, you know, a year in your case or uh, 10 years in mine. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> can't believe I've been in the industry for 10 years now. It blows my mind. Anyhow. Well, and, and I think that's also, I mean, it's worth noting too. Like, I mean, I've been in the industry for 10 years now too. Ah, that's and true. so, I mean, it's, you know, it, it, I, I would Probably certainly not consider myself to be like an overnight success by any means. Uh, yeah. I think that a lot of whatever success that I have found in the last year has come from paying attention to things that you're writing and putting out there about like, yes, you, you can do this. Like you don't have to just be toiling in an obscurity. You can <laughs> do a very reasonable amount of uh, effort put into um, creating something that people find valuable and be able to benefit from that. It's, you know, the, it, 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 it's very, very achievable. I totally back everything you just said there. One of the things that, uh, about overnight success that always stuck with me is that um, Peldi, the gentleman behind Balsamic Mockups, um, Balsamic Mockups had the best like first year sales of virtually any software company that I know about, aside from one that had you know five hundred million dollars of VC injected into it in year one and then spent three hundred million dollars on ads and sold two hundred million dollars of software. But um, uh, they absolutely meteoric graph in the first year. And Peldi had a great presentation where he showed the meteoric graph. It's like, so that's what it looks like from the outside, but from the inside, and he shows a graph that expands 28 years in the past for as long as they've been in the software game at various companies where obviously for the first, you know, 27 years or so it was zero software sales and then overnight success. And he's like, overnight success didn't take overnight, took 27 years, but then people uh, kind of selectively edit that down when they're talking about it. Yeah. I think that is very important to point out uh, overnight. You know, uh, I was uh, just doing, I call it the grind, like just the get up day to day, bang out some code, write some emails, try some experiments for, uh, I'd say maybe after four or five years, years of doing it, like a thousand people knew who I was. Yeah, uh, I, I like the, the 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 metaphor of pounding the rock. Yep. So, yeah, totally in agreement. And I think that's a, it's also a thing, though, like, you know, you don't have to be uh, that 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 long tail of, of uh, you know, toiling in obscurity, like I was kind of mentioning it before. Like, I could have been doing things so much smarter so much earlier. Like, yep. it wasn't like I it wasn't like uh you know, I'm, I'm a radically more experienced or smarter designer now. It's just mm -hmm. like, I just had to do uh, an inch more, uh, smartness around being able to, to, uh, distribute that information, I guess. Right. Kind of like operationalizing it in a business sense. Oh, that just sounded like a management consultant. <laughs> um, sorry guys. Uh, anyhow, like I totally agree on that. That's one of the reasons I, you know, have my blog. One of the reasons why I really like the kind of openness in our industry from folks like Paul Graham, Joel Spolsky, all the way down to folks like, you know, me, Nathan Berry, et cetera, where uh, you don't have to make all the mistakes to learn all the stuff anymore. Yeah. It's great. Like, you know, I've made so many mistakes, so you don't have to. 
Right. Heaton Shaw has been another person I would, I would certainly put up in that, in that pantheon of, of helpfulness as well. (laughs) Yep. Uh, I've learned many things from Heaton over the years. Uh, Man, could do an entire podcast just about intellectual influences for stuff that I do on a day-to-day basis, probably get up to 200 names. You should. Uh, Yeah. I would absolutely listen to that. Putting on list influential in, intellectual influences. Sorry, I just ran that down. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, yeah, you know, you can gen- uh, learn this over time. I think one little asterisk that I put often when talking about the topic of, uh, of learning from other folks is that you should generally balance learning from other folks with doing for yourself. Mm. And just because I know a lot of folks who, you know, they're working the day job, the day job's taking up a lot of their creativity slash mental energy. And so they listen to podcasts, they read the blog posts, they you know, go, even go to conferences, watch the presentations. And it's like they're perpetually in training for, you know, the championship bout that never comes. Right. I so, I oh, that totally resonates with me. I mean, that was for a very long time. I was like, I, it, you know, if I, if this was school, I would be so ready to take the test right now. But, you know, nobody's sliding that test, uh, you know, onto my desk or whatever. Like, very much felt that way, for sure. Right, right. Um, I felt like that myself for many years prior to actually starting a business. So I would encourage all of you guys, take the plunge. doesn't have to be a, you know, life-changing burden the ship's decision or anything. Just start, like, start a blog if you don't have, already have a blog. If you've got a blog, start an email list if you've already got an email list. Start, like, put a stake in the ground, uh, a product that you want to get out and make the progress towards actually getting that out there. Yeah. Watch it. Like, everything about life gets better after shipping things. Yeah. And and I think it's important to emphasize, too, and I think you've made this, (laughs) this is probably actually where I picked it up is from you, but, like, don't discount your, the the expertise that you already have. Like, just because you're not a a nationally recognized name or whatever that might be, like, if uh, people are paying you to do something, then that (laughs) is enough expertise to for you to be able to disseminate that information in exchange for an email sign up or something along those lines so yep you know getting somebody's email address you are not proposing marriage it's just <laughs> like hey if in this one interaction we've had together you think that it might be useful possibly having a relationship with me in the future and hearing even more valuable stuff yeah here's an easy way to accomplish that and I know many, many geeks have kind of like an anti-email bias. I did too as an anti-spam researcher because I only saw the absolute worst of email for years and years. But, you know, uh, a lot of folks are not offended by being asked for an email address. Like even if, you know, 50% of the audience is like, I never give my email to anybody. That's okay. You can, you know, you can read the blog at your own pace. That's fine. The other 50% though, their email, uh, those are quite valuable to have. Yeah. And I think that it's an important distinction to make too, where like by saying just start, like, I mean, I, I certainly completely concur with that, but at the same time, I wouldn't say just, just start a blog to have a blog or start a podcast to have a podcast. I mean, <laughs> the, the lens that I would uh, use on that is just start contributing things that people find useful in whatever yes. the delivery mechanism is. Absolutely true. I totally agree with that. I also think that it's, the kind of like effectiveness for these sort of things, both in terms of, you know, reaching an audience and creating a value to that audience and in terms of uh, helping out your career slash business interests goes way the heck up once you find that that thing that you're good at. 
I had a blog for, hmm. So I started it the same week that Bingo Card Creator shipped just to, and the original idea was I'm just gonna, you know, write down stuff about what I did for Bingo Card Creator. And uh, the uh, that blog really only hit its stride maybe three or four years later after I figured out like the thing that I had a you know comparative advantage against versus the rest of the internet was that little itty bitty intersection between engineering and marketing. Mm. And, you know, started writing about that a lot. It resonated with a lot of people, it, you know, actually knock on wood changed uh, other people's businesses for the better in a lot of cases. And I wrote, you know, the more I wrote about that and the more I wrote about it in a particular format that you might, uh, might be familiar with if you follow my blog or podcast or consider for a while, because I've just got, you know, I've got a style, like that style worked with a, like 500 word update on here's what I did for SQL optimization today. Uh, there's probably a post or two on my blog about that, which five people have read and nobody found tremendously valuable. And there's better, there's much better SQL optimizers elsewhere on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I guess that like when you talk about going after a niche or whatever that might be, um, you know, looking at the, the gaps in between really big things. So, you know, for me, marketing and product, you know, like that. there's user onboarding or for you between, you know, engineering and marketing, uh, a lot of times I think that's, that's a place that you would look. That is good. Yeah. You can just be, <laughs> so it's going to sound a little weird, but you can have a very happy, fulfilling, rewarding career just by being the spackle between different teams in an organization. Right. Well, and that's why they have consultants. Otherwise they would have already staffed for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, if I could make a recommendation on, on niche finding. Um, ooh, sure. So because actually I was kind of preparing for this and I was like, what what do I do that I didn't get from Patrick McKenzie like, that's not already out there? Um, and one thing that I haven't seen anybody really write about and the people that I've recommended it to have found it uh, helpful is to pick a term, like almost like if you wanted to compete for SEO or whatever, mm -hmm. just like the presence of mind. Um, you know, I very quickly realized that there was not like the user onboarding guy. Um, mm -hmm. And so specifically that being a term that a people had a, an emotional reaction to like, Oh, onboarding. I call it the known groan when people are like, Oh yeah, our <laughs> sucks. Like, so looking for something that they actually like, you know, have some sort of emotional, I guess, revulsion to, um, that, that indicates that it's kind of a hair on fire need. Like you were indicating that you were mentioning before. Um, and also that's just a, like, it's a specific phrase or term or something like that. Um, and a really the the actionable part of this recommendation is once you've uh, maybe if you have a few different ones that you think you might want to try, um, set up Google alerts for them. And <laughs> if you're getting flooded with stuff, that's you're probably too broad. Um, if you're not getting anything, then people don't care about it. But if you're getting like three to four or five a day of new articles that are coming out that have that term, you know, in the subject line, um, that to me is is something that you can that's a very strong indication that you can own that niche and it's a niche worth owning. Um, right. You can be the person who comments like you, every time somebody sees a user onboarding post, I should have some sort of presence there or, you know, and I can leave a comment or I can link to it, you know, through the user onboarding Twitter account or something. Um, but I have that Google alert and it's been just like tremendously valuable for me. So that's my, <laughs> that's my tip of the week. I think that is a useful tip. Um, one of the things that I, struggled with in my own kind of consultancy slash larger business interests that there wasn't really, um, I had an idea for what I was good at, yeah, but I don't really have a word for it. 
mm-hmm. and it bounced around a little bit. Now, other people like created words for that sort of thing. Like the, uh, you know, growth hacker is a created word to identify some niche for a particular type of individual and then allow them to uh, go after it. And uh, I don't particularly love that created word, but there might be, you know, better cases for it. Anyhow, that's neither here nor there. So uh, one quick question before we get off the topic of your book. Um, do you mind if we share with the audience what the kind of like results for, uh, from that book were for you? Like financially speaking? Uh, financial or, uh, you know, more important than that. Either way. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, either, either of those sound good. Um, as I mentioned, I really... Uh, did not do the launch super well. Um, in the, in the, I was actually being a hypocrite cost me thousands of dollars. I think in that scenario, wherein, <laughs> uh, one of my strongest philosophies is like paying attention to the last mile. Um, don't tack onboarding on at the end, make sure people realize the, you know, uh, are oriented in the, of around the value that they're going to be getting, paying attention to those switching moments, so on and so forth. And I literally was editing my book up until hours before I launched and mm-hmm. spent probably about uh, one fiftieth of the amount of time I should have spent on the sales page. So um, worked really, really hard to build up the email list to, uh, you know, a few thousand people and blasted them at a page that was really confusing to them and, and did not emotionally engage them or anything like that. Um, Fortunately, because of the robustness of just having built up the list and, you know, trying to warm it up before I before I launched and kind of sharing the the ride, I guess, as as we were going, mm-hmm. um, I still made like 7000 and change on the launch day. Um, but there were some very forehead slappingly obvious problems with the sales page itself that fortunately, that's, again, a nice thing about not just basically optimizing for a launch and then. And then trying to keep as much money from it as possible, like being in it, invested in the, in the long haul and seeing it as an ongoing asset, I guess, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to make those changes within a couple weeks and, you know, saw that things were not going to be nearly as dire as they as they appeared to be on launch day. Um, so actually, I just um, ran the pulled up the 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 uh, launch to date stats uh, in Gumroad, which also I recommend Gumroad um, for those (laughs) out there. One more person who's a very happy customer. And I'm just uh, probably by the end of the week, I'll I'll cross over the 70K uh, sales uh, number. Awesome. Congrats. Thank you. That's that's probably the first time I've heard a 10X increase from launch to to lifetime. But yeah, actually, it makes makes a lot of sense in software. Uh, The Man, the power of having assets. Uh, just last week, Bingo Card Creator sold its 10,000th license. Oh, awesome. Um, so, yeah, uh, only took 10 years or eight <laughs> years or whatever 2006 to today is. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, the, the power of having assets, right? And it's Man, also, I, you know, it's also it, something where, like, that's, that is basically, you know, what I used to make in salary. So, you know, just to not only has it led to more consulting work and higher price consulting work and things like that, but like just knowing, you know, my family's not going to starve if something weird happened or just having that as an ongoing source of, of revenue is, is very comforting, I guess you could say. Yep. It allows you to also optimize for other decisions. Like if you, you know, 
if you're the typical person with a salary job, you have to have that salary job or else, you know, the rent does not get paid for next month. Uh, if you are the typical freelancer and somebody comes to you as a proposal and you're not really feeling it about this client or uh, it's not exactly the kind of work you want to be doing or uh, maybe they're you know giving you pushback on your rate or whatnot, you might think, well, I have to make these compromises in this business relationship because the rent is due next month and I need to sell these hours where if you have you know a baseline, even a small baseline, you get to be really picky about things. It's like, well, yeah, you know, and I don't have a great option for consulting next week. So I could take a like a middling option to consult for the next four weeks, or I could you know just wait and see if a great option uh, shows up. And that lets you let you be more uh, more selective with your clients, let you pick uh, the kind of work that you want to be doing. In a lot of cases, it actually is better for your clients. Like uh, I not vigorously uh, over here once again. Yeah. yeah. Um, there were a lot of consulting clients where I said, you know, we, we heard the outlines of what they want and said, look, I'm not the right guy for this. So I'll just give it to you straight. Here is the right guy for it. You should have him do it instead. And, you know, um, and if I was more constrained by financial stuff, I might think, well, I'm not the right guy for this, but for, for, you know, my rate per week, I could be the almost halfway decent guy for it. Um, yeah. And then, you know, when I go into clients, I kind of have the ability to say, like, we are, you know, you brought me in to do the best possible work and get you the best possible results. So we are only going to do projects, which will be my best possible work and get what I think before doing the project is likely to give you the highest, uh, the highest results. And if you are not amenable to that, that's fine. There are many consultants out there. I can recommend you one of them. Yeah. I totally agree. Like, I mean, it's at this point where I kind of know, like, the the unit of work that goes into creating a teardown is going to result in roughly, you know, a certain amount of money coming back in book sales every time I do it. <laughs> and so it's it's like, you know, when I'm when I'm bidding on a project, uh, I'm I'm like, how many teardowns basically is this project going to be? And you know, the number of uh, financially that I would get out of doing X teardowns is is uh, often a lot higher than what a client would be willing to pay for the same amount of work to work directly for them. Um, mm -hmm. Or at least it's a, it's a healthy way for me to keep that in perspective. So there's that. Um, yeah. and another nice thing is like, I was just, um, as I mentioned way earlier, there was the, you know, I'm, I'm in the very, very early stages of creating uh, software for the onboarding space. Mm -hmm. And so I um, put out a survey and like, I didn't even drive that much traffic to it. I didn't, I haven't sent out an email linking to it, to my email list or anything, like just tweeted out a couple times. And at the end of the survey, I said, it was really great of you to complete the survey as a thank you. Can I send you a coupon for 15% off of the book? And it's like, it's a nice opportunity to be able to be generous. Like there's something that you can offer. Mm -hmm. And also at the same time, I don't care if somebody buys it for 15% off. Like if that's going to be, you know, mm -hmm. a, a triggering moment for them, then great. And so I've already made like a couple of hundred bucks just from putting out a survey, which is I'm almost getting paid to do customer development. So, you know, that kind of thing is really nice. I really like your idea of writing the book before writing the SaaS product for a lot of reasons. I think probably my next, next product is going to be a SaaS just because Long story, I could do an entire episode on this, but uh, appointment reminder is now exactly holding my holding the fire in my belly. 
And I want to get into like, you know, some sort of, since it turns out the thing that I'm really good at and that my audience really trusts me about is making money for software companies. I want to make a, making money for software companies as a SaaS business. That makes a lot and of I'm sense. I'm probably going to be thinking in the next 18 months about how to actually, you know, turn that into something. But it's a heck of a lot easier to, you know, make a SaaS business after you've written the book on it and prove that there is an audience that cares about that topic and is empirically willing to pay you money about it than it is to just, you know, parachute into a field and say, well, I don't have any evidence that people are willing to pay money for solutions to this. And uh, if they are willing to pay money for solutions, I don't know who that is. Yeah. I'm going to you know, spend the next six months on writing Ruby code anyhow and see if it works. Well, and you're going to yeah. be spending a bunch of time trying to build up that audience regardless. Yep. So, I mean, looking at like Rand Fishkin with what he did with SEO Moz at the time, where he put out the beginner's guide to SEO and got all of that attention and built up his audience around that. And then we're like, oh, well, we should create tools to serve this audience that exists <laughs> now. You can very clearly see, you know, the transition from one to the other. So, yep. So I want to just do a little bit of a callback to something we were talking about earlier. You mentioned how when you were writing your book, you had really, really hard stretches. Like, uh -huh. oh, man, this is taking much more time than I expected it to be. Creative work it is occasionally a beast. Um, so I have a funny story on that. I've been saying since last August, like not the August in 2014, but the one in 2013. Yeah, I'm good with math that way. Since last August, that any day now I was going to be releasing a course on conversion optimization. Well, knock on wood, any day now, uh, hopefully before the birth of my daughter at the end of the month, I will be releasing a course on software conversion optimization. It's on softwareconversionoptimization.com if you guys want to take a look at it. So if you could, yay, great. Yeah, that's the other, the other thing I really like about the kind of asset building approach to business as opposed to the uh, grinding it out for the day job approach to business. Like I am preparing to kind of just like push the pause button on pretty much everything aside from responding to routine email business-wise for much of the next six months after uh, my daughter is born just to be able to be present for that, which is something that is kind of difficult to do if you're committed to the, you know, standard W2 slash working professional life. So. There you go. Well, Pretty awesome. Count me in as a first day purchaser of said said course. Oh, awesome. Uh, well, thanks very much. Yeah. Uh, I should also mention, I, I think I bought yours as well. I, that's funny. Like, uh, so, you know, there's lots of stuff on the internet that teaches various worthwhile things like your stuff on user onboarding. And I, like any other business, I have a budget for, you know, training employees. And I think mine runs to... Uh, probably I would have to check with the accountant, probably like on the order of like $2,000 a year, which it's, you know, seen from the perspective of a business, which might have, let's say hypothetically made six figures turnover, that $2,000 is not a lot of money. But like when you divide it over the fact that I only probably read like 10 business books a year, that means I'm spending an average of like $200 on each of them, uh -huh. or maybe not books, like, you know, courses, products, yada, yada, yada. But uh, and then... You figure, okay, if you can like price things at $200 and then have businesses be happy to pay for them, like I'm happy to pay for your stuff. And then you aggregate that over even a small number of people that turns into a real amount, like a maybe life changing isn't the right word, but definitely life impacting amount of money for an individual running a business in a really short amount of time as a like producer of useful stuff. I wholly concur. Anyhow. Well, thanks very much for coming and getting interviewed on the podcast, Sam. It was really awesome to have you. And uh, 
If folks want to hear more about more from you, where should they go? I would recommend useronboard.com, as we've mentioned. On Twitter, also useronboard, and on Twitter as Samuel Hulick, which is just my name as one word. And that's for those of you who have difficulty spelling oh. like I did, it's right, right. H-U-L-I-C-K. Yeah, S-A-M-U-E-L-H-U-L-I-C-K. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for being on the program. Uh, knock on wood, we'll have another podcast available in about two weeks or so, assuming I'm not called away by either work duties or baby duties. And we'll likely be on the subject of churn. I hope you guys can catch it. Thanks, as always, for showing up for the podcast, and we hope to see you next time. Awesome. All right. Bye-bye.